Welcome to the fourth episode of The Celluloid for the week of July 9th, 2021. Today I am joined by Matthew Wade. Matthew is inspired by the exploration of ideas, dreams, creative techniques, and how the application of personal exploration lends itself to the way others absorb his work. With clear intentions about the exploration of a film's imagery, inquiries of sequence, timing, and atmosphere, manifest into something more akin to the recording of a dream as opposed to a traditionally structured narrative. Matthew believes that aesthetics are king and they matter more than the plot of a film or its attempt to impart some specific agenda. He hopes that his films are a starting point of conversations and not a passive experience meant to be a cheap moment of entertainment. Now on to the episode. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah. Well, welcome. Thank you for, for joining me. How are you doing? How's, how's your day going? Good, good so far. Just got back into the studio, so uh, I'm just getting back to it. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, so thank you for joining me today. Yeah, um, yeah this podcast took a bit of a, a hiatus for a minute, but um, I knew I wanted to come back to it this summer, um, especially after you know a year of COVID. It's interesting to see uh, just like where everyone is at right now with like projects and things, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So the standard question I always start with is, uh, you know, like how you got started in filmmaking or the arts, because um, what I've observed from you is um, you kind of cross uh, various paths of like animation and digital art, but also analog. So where like did that start for you? Um, I think initially, like my interest in just performing arts and stuff was in high school. Um, I was an actor and I actually went to college on a partial scholarship for acting. So that was my main interest. Um, I thought I would like maybe do theater. Um, I was also really interested in uh, comedy and like sketch comedy back then. So one of my main things when I was in high school was like, I really wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Like that was my huge thing. Um, Nothing that I've made in my career would reflect that but like uh that was my initial interest and then because i was an actor in high school i had a lot of people that would make films like aspiring filmmakers in high school classmates that always wanted me to act in their stuff um and i always played a villain and that was sort of my introduction into like no budget filmmaking um but as i started doing that i sort of i sort of got to a point where I was like, I think I could come up with more interesting movies than um, all of my classmates are just cause they, you know, like in high school, you're always mimicking what you like and stuff. And I did the same thing when I started out, but uh, yeah, that was kind of my, that was kind of my intro into it. And then I went to college on a partial acting scholarship. And when I was in college, I just, I was not interested in it at all. Like I just realized I didn't want to spend my time 
auditioning and going through all of that stuff. I just, I got to a point where I just realized I would rather be the one making the stuff than acting in it. My interest just sort of shifted that direction. Um, so that's kind of my brief, um, my way that I got into it. And then as far as like the analog filmmaking, early on, I met a guy in town. Um, he's a, actually teaches at the Boise State University now. But when I met him, he was kind of just this enthusiast that had a lot of analog camera and sound recording equipment. He was a musician. He also shot on 16 millimeter and he had a bunch of like old cameras. And I used to go to these film meetups in Boise where I'm from and everyone was always playing their stuff on tapes. And I just didn't think it looked that interesting or cinematic. So I shot short films with my friends, but they were all kind of comedy and stuff like that and just kind of goofing around. But then he, this guy, Nathan brought a film that was on super eight millimeter on a projector that he had shot himself and he played it. And that was kind of like an eye opening thing where I was like, Oh, that's, that looks cinematic. That looks like movies. And so I hung out with him and bugged him a lot. I was just like fresh out of high school. And he showed me a lot of the way that you shoot on analog because there just wasn't really anyone else that was that interested in it. So that's how I got really interested in that. And then I bought a Super 8 camera from a studio in Germany that was closing. Um, and I just started shooting a bunch of stuff, like a lot of black and white. And back in the day, in the Northwest, there was a lot of film processing. That's all gone now. But you could mail your stuff. I could mail from Boise to Seattle, you know, my film and get it back in a couple of days. Uh, transferred and everything so that was sort of when I saw images that were shot on film that we had made that was kind of the gateway drug that I couldn't turn back from so you got you got your super 8 camera you said in Germany or like a studio? yeah I ordered it from Germany but yeah it was like a studio it was really well taken care of um, it was just this studio that was closing and this guy was like getting rid of all of his inventory a lot of old film equipment and I just I bought it from him off of like eBay or something but it was in pristine condition with the lens and everything was really really nice so i shot a bunch of stuff on that camera okay is this the same camera that um i guess like segueing into the feature film that you shot on like um how the sky will melt and, yeah yeah so was that was that shot on that camera or what was the process of that because I, I remember the last time we talked you said there was like it was like a whole kind of roller coaster making that film like in regards to the technical of just like getting all of um all the cartridges you know set aside to make such a a big project yeah that was shot on the so the the first uh that first camera i got was a bauer c107 xl and we shot How the Sky Will Melt on a Bauer C109 XL. So I had pretty much used that first camera until it just did not work anymore. I think a lot of people don't realize that those were basically home movie cameras. So you run enough film through them, the little pull-down claw just wears itself out and the motor just wears itself out. So we bought another one before we shot uh, How the Sky Will Melt. Um, and then we had it looked at and cleaned up and we did some fixing of the motor and stuff like that just to make sure it would run really robust but even that one pretty much we ran it dry just shooting that film we pretty much you know used the last bit of life that it had but um that was in we shot that in 2012 so 
we were that was really in the period where film was like on a massive decline and there were all those rumors about Kodak shutting down and I lived in Los Angeles at the time when I when I wrote the movie and when we did pre-production and even when we shot it even though we shot it in Idaho where I'm from we were living in Los Angeles at the time I just knew that I could shoot it in Idaho a lot easier because I knew the locations and I, I wrote it for that like that area um, but there was no support structure for film at that time. It was right when like the first black magic camera had come out and everyone was shooting on red by then. We were, we were kind of in this no man's land of like, no one was supporting film. When we said we were shooting it on film, everyone was like, why? Like, what, what the hell are you doing? What, what, like, why would you shoot on film when there's all these new digital cameras? But I kept being like, because of the aesthetic, like it needs to be, it needs to look a certain way. I wrote it to be shot on Super 8 on colorful film. Like that was the design. So, but yeah, we ran into uh, we ran into a lot of issues. The lab in Seattle that we got the telecine done on um, was in the middle of closing. We were the last film that got transferred at um, at this lab that had been you know kind of the staple in the Pacific Northwest for. Uh, a long time. So, and they were in the middle of closing, like boxing up their stuff, leaving when uh, my buddy, who was one of the producers on the film, Jake, uh, went and picked the film up because he lived in Seattle at the time. And so we were on, I was on the phone with him when he went to pick it up because we were so nervous that they just were not going to care because they were going out of business. Uh, so we had all of our film there and we were really nervous about like, when he went into the office, there was like nobody working in there anymore. He was just wandering around the hallways until he found somebody. So we were super nervous that like they had just lost the film or whatever. Luckily, he got it. I in the parking lot when he was on the phone with me, I had him like pull out a few reels and hold them up to the sun. And I was like, tell me that there are images on them. Like, let's make sure before you leave that the actual like film uh, has something on it. And so he pulled out the first few, pulled out the you know, leader. And then sure enough, he was like, yeah, there's a bunch of little boxes of, cause he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't, he's not the camera guy. So he didn't really know what to look for, but I was like, just keep pulling the leader tape out until you start to see little squares on the film. And sure enough he did. So we were like, okay, we got that part done. Then we had to mail all that film to Toronto because they were like one of the only affordable places that we could find to, get the film transferred so yeah it was like a big kind of international yeah. project do you know how many cartridges you ended up shooting or is like is that kind of like gone off your memory now <laughs> or just um, like a blur? i want to say i want to say 300 or so i oh think my god that's all crazy together yeah um and then i lost one of them so it was a weird number it was like i think we ended up with like 299 cartridges back because I had ordered, we had used 300, but one of them got lost. Uh, I think I threw it when I was like pissed off about something and, and then we looked for it forever and we never could find it. So I don't know what happened to that cartridge, but yeah, yeah. there's one missing cartridge out there somewhere in the dirt that. <laughs> yeah. And like, they all turned out okay. Like was like one cartridge you got back was like, was any of them like overexposed or was there like incidents where you had to kind of correct in the digitizing process or no no that whole film uh if you see it now basically like that is the lab that did the transfer um 
they're called Frame Discrete. Um, they're in Toronto. They were actually really cool. They they cut us a nice deal because we had no no money left, and so we got them to work on a cool deal where they would kind of just do it in the off time when they didn't have a busy project. So we had to wait a while, but they gave us a nice uh, 2K at the time. That was like the biggest they did a 2K transfer, and then they did all the they did basically a color grade just off of our color charts that we had shot. Um, we were pretty adamant about shooting color charts and gray cards, knowing someone else was probably going to color it. Um, so the transfer that they did, I mean, that is, that is what we used. I didn't adjust the color or anything. I mean, that was exactly how it came back. So yeah, everything, everything exposed pretty much like we wanted it to. Yeah. And just like, yeah, you bring up like aesthetics and not even like for me, like watching, um, this film, like beyond like the aesthetic of the super eight, I was really impressed by, um, just like the costume design, the, the glasses or the I think mm-hmm. the yeah the sunglasses right that um, the main character puts on and the others at the pool and just just like the vibrant colors they're all wearing because it's it's set during the eighties right That's yeah we never yeah. said like a specific era so we never like we never reference a specific time but that was kind of the thing it was like late eighties early nineties and we had limits on yeah. technology that we would show types of cars we would show so yeah we're kind of trying to keep it in this like vague yeah (laughs) retro past sort of we kept calling it like a fetishized version of the past like um we borrowed from a few different things but we're kind of trying to make it this sort of like parallel universe we kind of shot it like it's not in the 80s it's just like a parallel universe where things sort of stayed the way that they were or advanced in this weird way but i mean all of that stuff is credit to uh, Sarah Lynch, who's also the lead actress, she she was the uh, she did all the art direction and production design on the film. So all of that stuff is her. Yeah, it's like it's so incredible. That's what really drew me into that piece. And a lot of your films really just have really striking imagery. And I think when reading your bio and just looking into your work, it feels very dreamlike in a sense. And um, I'm just curious, like how you go about kind of like um, conceptualizing you know, kind of like reaching that kind of imagery and trying to get that onto film. I guess, like, what is your writing process when trying to approach that kind of surrealism kind of filmmaking? And yeah. My stuff always starts like pretty purely visually. Um, So I'll get like very specific sort of images in my head that have like the color and the light and everything's already fleshed out before I know what the idea is supposed to be. So uh, I think that's why a lot of my stuff is so aesthetically like that's like another thing for me with films that I watch is I'm way more interested in the aesthetics of movies than I necessarily am with the story of them. I almost don't care if there's a story at all. That's kind of why I can just binge experimental film and stuff. If if there's something interesting with the audio and the visual side, that will pretty much do it for me. Um, and I know that that's a struggle with a lot of people is they're like, you know, they're more concerned about the story. And I think, I think the balance for me is I really like the aesthetics of cinema, but I also, I hate when films try to like make sure that you get every single part of the plot, like this over explanation of for example like you know um as fun as they are like every saw movie for example they spend like 10 minutes at the end going back to make sure that you see every single little easter egg and it's like 
you don't need to do that. If people, if people are interested, <laughs> yeah. they'll watch the movie again and pick it up. Like these flashbacks where they have to like over explain everything just drive me crazy. Um, so uh, I don't know. And I probably shift too far to the other end of it, but for how this guy will melt and like my newer feature um, there's, I was really trying to play with like a dream logic that parsed out as much information as you might get in a dream. Like you don't have the backstory to this bizarre character that shows up in the dream. They fulfill the need that your brain has for whatever plot you're developing as you're dreaming. Um, but we also, when we go into it, we have very specific backstories that we as the filmmakers or the actors know, but a lot of that is withheld from the audience because it's like just not necessary for the mood that we're kind of trying to create. Um, so the writing process is similar. It's like, I'll have a lot of visual ideas and then I'll start, I write really slowly. It takes me years um, because a project, I basically like kind of let it develop organically as it starts to develop. And if I try to force something or I try to sit down and write something that doesn't have like a visual cue for me, it just always, it just never ends up working. So I really have to like, I'll get a visual idea that I'm like, okay, this is a cool idea. But then over time I'm like, this is for animation. This is not going to work in a live action piece, but then maybe another note I had written for an animation idea I'm working on suddenly seems more appealing as a live action thing. So, and then it's like not every live action thing works together. So I'll develop one thing that's like, I've been developing this idea that's kind of like this gothic um, haunted house movie over the years, uh, over the last few years. But that just comes in little tiny fragments where I'll get a visual idea and I'll be like, this is really cool. What can I do with this? And I'm like, oh, it needs to be over in this project. It doesn't work in the one that I'm currently doing. So uh, most of my process is very like instinctual, I guess, where I kind of just write to the flow of imagery that's kind of fitting into a theme rather than it starting out as a story and then sort of matching the visuals backwards. I feel like I've, I've taken that approach as well. Um, Cause yeah, I don't know this, this past year I worked with a co-writer and that took a long time like to flesh out, like for a more dialogue heavy film, mm -hmm. which I never really I don't know. I was never one for like realism narrative filmmaking, but yeah, it, it was an same. interesting process. But yeah, I'm definitely in the same lane as you of like, I'll just have images come to my head and I'll just jot them down or just kind of save them for a while. Yeah. But yeah, then I'm not sure what to do with them or what. Yeah, and it felt, at first it was like, I was like, oh, I should learn to write, you know, in the traditional way, blah, blah, blah. But then, um, after hearing a few interviews from like, you know, David Lynch and it's like, that's yeah. the same approach, the exact same way. He's like, yeah, I'll get an idea and then I'll kind of just like a visual idea and then kind of just wait and see like what story sprouts out of that. So I was like, okay, well, if other filmmakers are doing that, then it's like you, you give yourself permission to do, I don't know. And it's also just sort of the honoriness of the older I get, the more I'm just like, this is how I do things. This is what I'm comfortable with. I don't care what the convention is moving on yeah. from there. But all that yeah. said, I'm really trying, like the next thing I'm writing right now is really plot driven and it sprouted in my head that way. So that has been an interesting counter to like everything that I've said, because mm -hmm. this one has been, there's a lot, I mean, it's very visually heavy, but 
Um, I think for this one, the visuals really need the story to like give them that extra punch and have them really make sense. And it's a genre horror film, so you need those elements of plot that like make sense to the audience, but also kind of, again, I don't want to like do this over explanation where I'm like every single thing. So I'm fleshing out a huge, long, detailed backstory, but I know most of that's not going to be on screen. But I think the subtleties of like, if you're paying attention to it, hopefully it will all kind of make sense cohesively together but we'll see i'm still i'm still writing yeah and i'm thinking back earlier um like you brought up you you shot in idaho for the feature film is that like another strategy in your writing process is like going off of locations or just exploring a new space maybe you've never been to before or somewhere you grew up and like i guess yeah you said like kind of idaho was the inspiration for how the sky will melt or you knew you wanted to like set it there yeah, I think we knew that we wanted to do it in a place where, like, Sarah and I are from, because it just, it, the whole thing was about, you know, um, this person who left, and then they came back, and we got that sense, like, um, I went to film school up in Vancouver, Canada, then after that, we went down and were in LA for a few years, so every time we would go back home for Christmas or something, we would, like, run into friends that... And we're just like, you know, what are you guys up to? What have you been doing? And it's just like, they were, it was like over the years, every Christmas we would come back into town. They were all doing the same thing. And it was like, we felt like this separation was happening where we were really trying to um, have these like, re, you know, re-engage these relationships with people. And we were just realizing like our lives were going in such different directions that when we met up, it was like, weird small talk and all this kind of stuff that we sort of make fun of in the movie where they're like, you know, small Mm -hmm. talk banter that they're doing ironically. But we were running into that constantly where we were just like, okay, so how many times today are we going to have to talk about the weather? Because there's nothing else to talk about because we don't relate to a lot of people anymore. Mm -hmm. So going through that process, we were like, if we're going to make that movie, we need to do it in Idaho. And the other end of it just being that it's super cheap to film there because no one needs film permits if you want to go into a gas station or a grocery store and shoot, they let you. They're like, oh, we'll block the aisle off for you if you need. Like, they're just excited that something interesting is happening. <laughs> yeah. You know, versus like LA where you go into any bar all the way out to like Barstow, you know, you go into a bar and you're like, oh, can we film in here? And they whip out the form and they're like, here's yeah. the fee. This is what it costs. You know, do you have insurance? Blah, blah, blah. So we we're just like, oh, man. So growing up shooting in Idaho, we knew how easy it was going to be to like get locations. And for us, how this guy almost specifically, I wrote, I had shot in pretty much all of those locations before. So when I wrote it, I was like, this is where we're going to shoot this. This is where we're going to shoot this. And we had that all mapped out. Um, for the new thing I'm writing now, it's I'm taking a very different approach where I am writing things that I don't have specific locations in mind for. Um, because I'm trying to let the movie guide me this time rather than letting the kind of restrictions of a low budget or places that I've been to guide it. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to like knock something loose in my approach this next time around and, and do things kind of in a new way or kind of just mix it up so that I can take a little more ambition um, with it and see kind of if I can... I feel like I did the Idaho film with my first two features, so now I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something. It's it's still kind of in the North Pacific Northwest, but it's a little more like sprawling across the Pacific Northwest. Desert, ocean, 
forest, um, okay. that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And would you go back to Vancouver or Canada to film? Because I feel like that's a really popular place. A lot of people go to shoot features as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Vancouver's. I mean, that's yeah. It's it's cool. It's very similar to L.A. or New York, where there's like it's expensive. It's a super expensive place to live. Super expensive to shoot in certain regards but there is also a very cool like indie film scene in vancouver like we still have friends up there that are filmmakers and you can kind of still gorilla your way through a shoot even down like in downtown vancouver and no one really cares like you're supposed to use film permits but it's really (laughs) not no one's really enforcing it or anything like that versus like Mm -hmm. you know if you're shooting in la and but I don't know. The other end of that, too, is we've had friends that have shot a bunch of stuff in L.A. on their phones, you know, because you just look like a tourist, but you're really, like, shooting your friends having a dialogue scene on Hollywood Boulevard. So I think anymore you can kind of shoot wherever the, you know, location needs to be. I would love to someday make, like, an L.A. movie because I oh, love yeah. those films, like Drive or Heat or any of those. Like, I just love that sort of, like the LA noir thing. So someday I would love to do like that's that type of thing and really use the locations and the scenery and the streets and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. For now I'm still like in Pacific Northwest mode. It's interesting. You bring up someone, someone was just shooting on their, like their iPhone for like a, a longer form form film that they had. Made. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sean Baker, when they did uh, tangerine, like oh, he was yeah. talking about the fact that they were shooting on their iPhones because they could just get away with it. Like they could go into a shop and shoot without yeah. having to do like film permits and stuff. And if you're shooting on your iPhone, you know, people think you're doing like, you know, uh, making a, a video or doing something for Instagram or TikTok or something like that. So even if you're shooting like some narrative piece, it's like no one really notices because you're just, you know, filming on your phone, it's like harder to. Right. So that's yeah. a good way to sort of gorilla your way into, uh, or shooting, you know, um, from a car, like parking a car downtown that's got like tinted windows and upping your exposure, shooting through the window, but you can shoot people like that are, if they're mic'd, you know, if you need them to be mic'd or something like that. Those little cheats and stuff like that. And like, are you like anti iPhone filmmaking or, I mean, I, I really liked Tangerine, but. I yeah, I did mixed too. reviews, but yeah, or just like, what's your take on just like, I guess like iPhone cinema, like that kind of rise? Because it's interesting because, you know, there's like the whole argument on people are like, why are people shooting films on like Super 8 cameras still or Bolexes? But then there's also the argument of like iPhones. So I'm curious your thought on that as well. Um, I like some of, I like, there's, I've seen, you know, uh, Steven Stoneberg had a film that was shot on iPhone. I guess he's done a couple, uh, High Flying Bird and then the, I think Unsane it was called from a couple years back. Um, I, you know, like for those, I think, I think that they, they work. I have no problem with that. Um, but I personally have not come up with an idea where I think that the iPhone would work. Like aesthetically for me, it still sort of looks video-y and a little uh, too compressed, I guess. Uh, so I haven't really, like, come around to it myself. I've worked on a couple of shoots where they used it as, like, a B-cam, shooting on 4K because it's got, like, the smooth, you know, it's it's yeah. got, like, the natural smoothness to it if you set it up and you're shooting on, you know, Filmic Pro, like, any of those apps. Um, I shoot a, I, I have Filmic Pro on my phone, and I'll shoot, like... Um, 
I'll just shoot random B-roll if I'm like in a city that has like cool architecture or just something is interesting. I'll, I'll film it. Um, I have a collection of stuff I've shot that I try to compose very cinematically in the moment, but I have no idea what I'm doing with it. Like I'm just kind of shooting it to shoot it. Cause it's kind of fun to like grade that stuff later. Um, and I think you can get really cool images from it, but I don't know. There, there is, there's like sort of a look that iPhone footage still has that I'm not completely convinced by, but I'm sure that that will not be the case like within a couple of years. I, I felt the same way about digital cam, like digital cinema cameras um, until some of the more organic looking images came out of like uh, that digital 16 camera um, that they made really briefly. Um, that looked really cool. It graded really nice. It had, they had like an organic I forget what the specifics are, but it had like a natural sort of sensor in it. Um, and I really actually like the footage uh, from uh, some of the older Blackmagic cameras. I think they look really cool. They have like a, they just, they don't look as like digitally to me as a lot of the early stuff from like Red or whatnot. But yeah, yeah. I think now it's just like, it's totally just a choice of, the specifics of what you want. Like it's interesting to go to film festivals and still see shorts or features that are shot on a lot of, you know, if it's an indie film now, it's probably like 16 millimeter. It's pretty rare that they're on 35, but even then it's exciting. And I'll, you know, that person and I will usually end up in some conversation about shooting film because it jumps right off the screen to me. Like if I see something that was shot on, especially like super eight or 16, it, it, you know, you can tell instantly. And, then I'm super excited that people are still doing that. Um, so then, you know, well, I'll, we'll get into some conversation about it and then it like re-inspires me, but it's, it's interesting that I think most stuff that you see now kind of just has a digital look. And I think that kind of comes from a lot of my irritation with independent filmmakers, which is they want their things to look like everyone else's things, but I'm just like, if you're making a movie, especially with no budget, like this is the time to experiment and do something yeah. new and and play with play with stuff because you don't have a studio or producers breathing down your neck. Like you, if you get to that point and you want to do that, that's great. But like, if you're doing your own film, do something new with it. Like, why I don't this need to make everything look the same. Like the different movements, whether it's like the really desaturated look or the look that's like, you know, where they're really trying to like push the blacks to look more like, uh, you know, film stock where they're like really doing the deep blacks and, and that stuff can all look cool. And every project is specific to its own thing, but it's just, I feel like people get locked into like, it needs to look like what I see on TV or what I see at the movies. And it's like, if that's the idea, you're trying to make a commercial piece, that's great. But for me, especially shooting like raw digital, like with our last film, I thought the funnest part was like really trying to push the look as hard as I could and really trying to experiment with it. So I, I think that's, I think you get that latitude from digital because you can experiment. You're not really burning a film stock, but on the other end of it, it's like if you really just shoot film the way it's supposed to be shot, you know, it looks mm -hmm. stunning. Every, you know, it's like one of the ones you really don't have to screw around with that much. Yeah. 
and like you bring up meeting people and um and like is there like people right now that deserve like a shout out or like you're impressed by or like you have yet to meet but like you've seen their their work kind of floating around and like the the modern analog sphere that's been kind of still alive <laughs> um it's a good question um i have not the first film festival i've been to in person obviously in like over a year was i was just in texas at uh, oak cliff oh cool yeah um which was a super cool festival uh and there was um i'm like you know i'm buddies with uh kentucker uh, oddly who's sundance film uh, strawberry mansion um he and albert birney's their film they actually that one was interesting it was shot digitally but then they did a transfer to 16 millimeter which explained a lot of questions that I had when I was watching, because I, I saw it, you know, I streamed it during the Sundance Film Festival. And they were talking about it being shot on 16, but I kept telling Sarah, because we were watching it together, and I was like, there's something weird about this transfer, or there's something about it. And then when I was like talking to them at the festival, they were explaining how they had done it. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But um, I actually worked a little bit on, um, uh, there's a film called, there was also at Sundance called Superior, and uh, that was shot on Super 16, and uh, that team's really cool. They, uh, I'm not sure if the name, if I get the name right, I think it's Aaron, I'll, I'll look it up here real quick. I think um, I've heard, yeah, I think I've heard but, about this, yeah, this film. Yeah, it was based on a short um that they had made with the same title. Uh, it's like Erin Vassilopoulos or something like yeah. that. I'm sure, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but she's, she's an amazing director. I was a huge fan of her uh, from the shorts that she had made. And uh, they shot on, that, that film was shot on Super 16 and it looks really, really cool. Um, and I actually did the, did a, I did a little video game design that is in the film um, just because of her having seen uh, one of my old shorts, Plenistellarum. And so they were like, they needed a video game design for their film. So that was my little thing for them. But uh, that was cool. I mean, I, I was super stoked that they just went all in and they shot the whole film on Super 16. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a mood piece, but I, I think that's cool. I think that, um, I think that that's like a, I think they're a cool team that's doing cool stuff. And her shorts were, I think, shot on 16 and maybe one was on 35. So she's like, they're very into film stock and shooting film stock. Um, I think another recent example was like the uh, Love Witch, which was shot on 35, but oh, yeah, it, yeah. it just looks so cool because it's just this old school approach to shooting um and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, those are some of the rare ones that like come to mind recently, but then you obviously have like the big sprawling stuff, like once upon a time in Hollywood and stuff where you've got like, they're able to use the big, you know, the big cool stuff, the big, the big yeah. cameras and the big, you know, shooting with shooting the big films with, with big money. I also, I also can appreciate that. And, you know, cause those guys are also keeping, film stock alive right yeah yeah but like i don't know i, I have to give props to you and the, the woman you just uh and like her team that you mentioned like you know 
like that like, it's not it's not cheap like investing yeah. into film and like you saying 300 300 cartridges that's mm-hmm. you know like yeah what is that process like of um i guess like the, there's always like that term thrown around of just like you know like you're you're just looking down the barrel of the lens like about to take the shot and like just you know that anxiety and pressure like what's that process like of just blocking out actions and things and and dialogue and um just like make sure you know you're not like wasting film when you're going in for a take yeah i think it's a lot of planning and there's kind of that cliche they talk about but it's true it's like the everyone the actors and the crew they're really like on their game when they know there's film being shot versus digital. Like everyone, everyone sort of knows like you, as soon as you start rolling the camera, you can hear the money burning through the machine. Like that is the sound of like when it starts running, you, you, you're hearing the the cash start to catch on fire. So you're just like, okay, we've got to really make this count. Um, We did a lot of stuff like, that I had just sort of learned from other filmmakers that shot on film, which was we would shoot and really keep an eye on our meter to like see how much film we had left. And then if we got to a point where we didn't think we had enough to get a next take, we would stop and pull that cartridge out and mark how much time on that cartridge was left, like right onto the sticker on the cartridge. And we collected those and we had them marked on the box. So basically we had a bunch of like, partially used cartridges and then we used all those cartridges the rest of them to shoot some of the b-roll and stuff that we needed to get or just little inserts uh so getting the footage back it was insanely disorganized but except that we had slated everything so we knew where everything was supposed to go but yeah it was like we would have there'd be like this really intense you know sarah doing this really intense monologue and then the, you'd see the film sort of cut and then it would jump to, you know, an insert of a cat walking across the field or something like that. And then it would jump back to a shot of, you know, her laying in bed at night or something like that. So there were all those like sporadic things that happened, but it was because we were basically conserving as much film as we could. And then we would do other things too, like the rollouts. There's like a lot of rollouts that happen in the film uh, where the film reel actually is ending. And so you see all these like little psychedelic pops of light yeah those were even planned so those are really like yeah on the reel so they would finish like a line of dialogue and then the and then it would roll you know it would roll out and we use that as a changeover for in an editing technique but we were also like we know this film is going to roll out in 10 seconds so we would basically time their dialogue to end with the rollout of the film and that was just something kind of like experimenty that we were playing with. But um, I had done that on an earlier short film and I really liked the effect that it had. So going into the future, we were kind of like, we kind of knew we wanted to do some of that stuff, not overuse it, but there were certain moments where it was like, well, let's, you know, we have a tale here. So let's just, let's just fire off this piece of dialogue with this tale and just see what happens. And, Sometimes it worked and other times it didn't, but it was, it was fun to sort of play with those little extra bits of film that we had after we had shot the film and we had a few little things left over. That's when we kind of just started playing around with doing weird stuff. And some of it made it into the film, a lot of it didn't, but 
Yeah, it was a lot of planning and like being very specific about if we're not ready to roll, let's not roll. Um, yeah. The actors walked through the scenes a bunch of times until they felt really ready. So I kind of let the actors tell me when they felt like we were ready to rock and then kind of just went from there. And you bring up dialogue. I, I was I'm curious with, well, with Super 8. So is this, was this camera, like, was the motor silent or how were you able no. to slay it? No, it was so loud. Uh, <laughs> so all of the dialogue, except for two scenes, was, it, uh, was, was ADR. ADR? Yeah. Oh, wow. And That's... we were shooting on set knowing that because it was just, you know, we knew there was no way to, like, yeah. There were a couple times where we baffled the camera, but even so, it's like it gets really hot, and then it, and then it doesn't want to work. And so we were just we basically knew, but also the other end of it was we were kind of a style choice. Like early on, we knew the camera was going to be really loud; it was going to be hard to record a lot of the dialogue with it. But we also kind of wanted it to have that dubbed effect, where it was like an Italian film that was like dubbed over. So the dialogue kind of always just sits on top of the sound mix in this weird way. It never feels quite in the mix itself. Um, the only scenes we didn't do that on and we baffled the camera and it was really hard. We like pushed the camera really, guy really far back and then zoomed in as far as we could. And then I had like, our DP was like covered in jackets that were basically taped together to baffle the camera. And that was basically, we did that in this in there's like a scene where sarah's got this big monologue and she starts crying and she's like kind of coming unglued and i didn't want to i knew i didn't want to like try and redo that in adr um so that was one piece where and also shout out to my sound guy jacob kench uh he cleaned up there was still some motor in there but he he actually like went in and cleaned all of the motor out of it and like he did a lot of work after the fact to like maintain that performance. And then there's also some stuff where she's talking in a phone booth and we had her mic'd, but the camera was on the outside. So we didn't run into any sound issues with that. So that dialogue, it just sounded really good. She was in the kind of echoey box. So the reverb on it and all, it just looked right. So we just kept that piece, but the rest of it was all ADR. So we had every actor come to Seattle and we did like these ADR sessions over the course of, a couple of weeks um and yeah we ADR'd the whole film which i do not recommend anyone does it is a nightmare yeah oh i can't imagine yeah i mean well you were saying like you, it was okay with kind of having that dub effect but yeah yeah i yeah. can't imagine how many hours that must have taken yeah and it was a lot of you know it's it's also weird too because our camera wasn't crystal sync uh yeah so their time wobbled so when jake and i were like when we were taking basically the scratch dialogue that he had recorded on set and we were trying to match it up we spent a couple of weeks just trimming the dialogue and moving it slightly so we had to like cut in the middle of a line sometimes and bump and bump the dialogue over because it was constantly going in and out of uh sync so we did that. And then once we had that sort of all locked in place, that's what the actors listened back to. So there were a little, there were a couple little disruptions here and there, but uh, overall they picked up on it really fast. And it was, we've, it took less time than we thought it was going to, but um, yeah, the actors that came in, they were just, they, they were very cool about it. And they were game to like, they kind of knew what we were doing. They knew the style we were going for. So they were just like, all right, let's, let's do it. And we would just like, they would just listen to it on a loop, basically, and then they would start doing it themselves. And we just 
sat there for weeks at a time just watching the monitors back and forth back and forth as they did adr so yeah it was it was cool i mean i'm happy with the way it came out like i love the effect that it has but it was we were like never again like we're not doing this ever again yeah so i guess like segueing into animation like i was looking at your animation work how did you feel kind of like moving into that kind of um style of work and um yeah, I think one of your films was at Plena Stellarum. Is it that yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. The process of making that one, and I feel like it kind of reminded me of uh, a film idea you brought up earlier about like kind of like a gothic house. It, it's kind of, but it feels kind of like dripped in like neon reds and purples, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. It, it uh, so Plena Stellarum came about. Um, because of how the sky will melt. Uh, so after we shot the film, after we shot how the sky will melt, um, we had to like basically raise the money to get the film processed and then transferred. Because uh, the way that we did that was we basically raised enough money to get to the next step, and we had no money after that. So then we would raise a little more money to get to the next step. So we did a we were gonna start. We did a Kickstarter that ended up helping us finish most of that um but in the interim uh there was a lot of downtime where i think so from us finishing how the sky will melt like the last shoot to when i saw the footage was 15 months uh so that was like we didn't even know if the film had exposed because we didn't have dailies or anything we couldn't afford it so we didn't see any of the footage until 15 months after we had wrapped production. So for that time, I was kind of just going crazy, like, because we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what we had or didn't have. Um, So to fill the time, I, I started writing the score. I did most of the score for that movie while I was waiting to see the footage back. So it was not scored there's a lot of sequences in that that are cut to the soundtrack, but that's because the soundtrack was finished before I ever saw the footage. But I was like, I kind of knew what I wanted the sound to be. So I did the score and then I was kind of in this midpoint where I had nothing else going on. So I started making Punis Delarum to give myself something to do so that I wouldn't basically go crazy. So I started making that um, kind of in between commercial, like freelance animated stuff that I was doing. Um, But I didn't really know what it was supposed to be. Kind of going back to your earlier question, I had sort of the visuals in my brain, but I didn't really know how they connected. But the fun part of animation is you have a lot of time when you're working on one scene to let the rest of it kind of develop as you're working on it. So that one was kind of very instinctual. I kind of just made it as I went and the story started kind of making sense to me as I would, you know, I'm spending like a week animating some skulls that are moving through a forest. But while I'm, you know, in the, in the process of just doing all the little minutia of that, my brain developed, you know, sprouted six other scene ideas that would match this on either side. And it started developing sort of like a story idea in that. So that was a very, that was kind of just, I was making it as I was going, but I, when I was editing it, I omitted a lot of stuff and I kind of found the, the kind of flow that it had, um, but there's, I ended up with about a half an hour's worth of like finished animation with that movie that I cut down into whatever it is now, 12 minutes. Um, 
just because I, I started omitting things that kind of came about that didn't really make sense or work with the story. So that was kind of part of the fun of it was that, you know, there wasn't a crew I was waiting on. I didn't have to like raise the money to do it. And it was the first animated film I had made since being in film school. Cause I'd worked on a bunch of commercials as an animator, but I had, I had, that was the first thing I did as something that I just did for myself. And then that process was, that was a weird one too, because that film really has no context to anything else. So when it was done, I was like, I don't even know what the hell this movie is. Like, I didn't even know how to describe <laughs> it to people. I, I was just like, I don't know what it is. And then there were like yeah. several days where I was just like, why, why am I putting so much work into this? Like, I don't even know that I want to finish this. And uh, to her credit again, Sarah Lynch, my, uh, my wife and producing partner, uh, she just kept being like, well, just finish it. And if you don't like it, whatever, but just like make, just get it done. Like, you know, you've been working on it this long. So I begrudgingly like followed her advice and was like, okay, I'll finish it. And then um, it was probably like the most successful thing I had ever made up to that point. Like it just, it, it got into pretty much every festival I sent it to. It played at slam dance. I met a bunch of, I met a bunch of really cool people because of festivals I went to for that film. Like, um, and a lot of those connections sort of bled over into how I was able to start getting uh, a black rift begins to yawn made and stuff like that. So that movie has had this weird ripple effect. It just recently got licensed on Argo, which is like this short film um, platform. And yeah, it's a weird one that sprouts up every once in a while. That film is also uh, how I met Erin, who when she was making Superior and they needed a video game design, she yeah. remembered seeing my film. I also worked on a a pilot for Adult Swim by this director, uh, Katie Skelton, whose stuff is also very cool. Um, she remembered that film and she wanted me to do some like old school effects on uh, this live action thing that she had done. So uh, this short called Lusty Crest, which I don't know if it's online anywhere yet, but um, it was like a pilot that was made for Adult Swim that was, I thought was really funny and cool and far out, but uh, it didn't end up going to series, but um, yeah, that just, it was, that's one of those things where like, I'll tell people like, if you have an idea and you don't know what it is, like, just go for it because you never know what's going to come of it. Like of all the things I'd ever made, this bizarre experimental short probably opened the most doors for me of anything I'd ever made up to that point. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's crazy. I'm, I'm glad that, yeah, it worked out and you, you kept pushing and like yeah. your, your wife was a big supporter in that. <laughs> she, she's really yeah. good at seeing where I'm like getting fatigued and then stepping in and kind of giving me perspective and stuff like that. She's like, she's very skillful as like the producer to the moody artist kind of, kind of thing. Like she gets the language, so she knows how to like talk me down. Yeah. I guess like, that's definitely a, a big thing. I guess like one of, I guess like one of my final questions. Well, I'd like a few more, but yeah, just like for me recently, I I've been in such a a funk with these two films I had to make for film school. One is a doc, and the other is a narrative. And like I'm at this point where like I just took a month break, and I'm trying to get back into working in post production again, and like bringing in the the post production team. But I just feel fatigued, and I'm just not really sure how to 
how to get out of it. So I think that's yeah. also just a condition of like the past year and a half. Like oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think I it's not just you. Like I have I have felt it too. I've really been dragging on like I mean, as excited I am as I am about this new thing I'm writing, I still have just been dragging myself through it. And there's some days where I'm like, okay, this is a writing day. And then I end up watching, you know, Criterion Channel for five hours. And I'm like, oh, that <laughs> yeah, day's yeah. gone. And I'm like, justifying it to myself, like, oh, you know, you're going to watch movies. But in the back of my brain, I'm just like, no, you're just doing this because you don't want to write because you're just, you're not feeling it. So, yeah, it's weird. I used to kind of be, uh, I used to be a lot more, I feel like I was a lot more of a production machine before COVID and all of this stuff, because now I'm just like, I think there's another aspect to it too, which is like Sarah and I talk about this a lot. uh, During, during this, her perspective really shifted and she kind of was like, I think I want to start writing and directing this idea that she had had for a while. And I was like, yeah, let's, that's, that would be awesome. Like, let's Mm -hmm. do it. So she's been writing this thing that she's planning on directing and that that has kind of helped me sort of stay inspired too because like I want to be there for her and help her when she wants to make this movie. And I think I think that kind of thing, it, you know, us having this conversation now, I think it helps just to know other people are like going through the same thing and are still yeah. trying. Like there's still people that are, you know, you're still trying to get stuff done as difficult as it is, but there's a lot of recalibration and fatigue I think that people went into. And I definitely, I definitely came around to this idea of like uh, the DP on my last film, Lila, the striker. She's, uh, it was her first film that she was DP on, but she'd worked on a lot of film sets. And she was telling me, she was just like, during this time away, I've really had time to reflect. And was like, I only want to like work on movies that I believe in. And otherwise I don't want to like get, burned out and fatigued on working on you know people's movies that just don't feel like they have anything to say and they don't feel like they have like sort of any sort of artistic merit or anything and it's just like I think it gave people a chance to step back and take a breather and I think a lot of us came out of there I think we're still kind of figuring out like what that meant what that kind of recalibration felt like but yeah. I'm, I'm there with you for sure like I still have yeah. days where I'm just like I just I should draw today I should work yeah. on this idea but I just clean the kitchen instead and play with the cats <laughs> well there you go yeah I think as well like just you know the lack of being able to go to festivals I, I was at one sure. this past June but it, it was still kind of I don't know I mean it was kind of out it was outside which was interesting but even so, like, there's other places I would love to submit to across the states, but, you know, people are still, like, closed doors, and it's just kind of, like, now the cinemas are, like, opening more, but, yeah, I feel like that's part of it, too, of just, like, I'll finish the thing, but, like, I I want people to properly, like, sit in, like, a dark room or, like, somewhere, like, then we can talk afterwards, like, face-to-face, but it'll come again one day like yeah we're getting there (laughs) yeah it's it's i think it really showed how i think people knew it in you know on paper but i think it really showed how communal cinema is and how reliant we are in that sort of experience because like i was devastated like when i got when i heard that uh the uh the arc lights were closing because 
That was like my home when I was in LA for work. Like I lived there on the weekends. I saw like six or seven films a weekend when I was there. Cause I would just go in the morning and buy my like round of tickets for the day, eat there, drink at the bar there. Like I just loved being in that place because it was so all about movies and cinema and all the drinks are named after movies and movie references. And it's just like this film yeah. lovers paradise and so when they announced they were coming back after COVID, it was like, it was this, it was just one of those things where I was like, man, what is happening with movies? But then when, uh, a nice thing was going to Oak Cliff because it was like a full festival, you know, everyone was in these, you know, like the Texas theater, this like beautiful iconic theater where we were watching movies and everyone was just hanging out together. And then there was like a dance party that Dan Deacon was DJing. So everyone was just like cutting loose and drinking way too much but it was just like all of us that were there we were all like this is the first film festival we've been to in a year and a half um because all of us had had films that had played but only in like those digital yeah festivals where you had to like get a ticket through the portal and they use sundance and slam dance and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff so it was i got used to watching films at home but and I was like, oh, I could probably just do this. But then going to festivals, I was like, oh, man, no. I miss, like, watching movies with a crowd, like, people that are into movies. It's so different. Yeah, we'll get there. It's it's definitely, I mean, I don't know. I think, we're like, the U.S. has made a bit of progress. I don't yeah. want, like, I don't want to jinx anything. I, I know. Oh. I'm the same way. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, every time it seems like we're, and my <laughs> wife and her family, uh, kind of came you know come out of the restaurant industry so i've just been watching bars and restaurants get brutalized this whole time and oh yeah yeah. i've just been like oh gosh this is gnarly so i it's yeah it's Mm -hmm. i've been pretty doom and gloom through this whole thing so i'm just now starting to try and become more uh positive about stuff but it's more based on my fear that the government is constantly going to be like oh delta variant shut down again oh next variant shut down again so i'm just like okay i need to like block that stuff out and just make stuff because (laughs) i want to make stuff and not worry about these others like sort of social issues i don't know i haven't watched the news in a long time too i we basically just watch like the food network and stuff because (laughs) yeah we just have to like block this stuff out and just we're like no we're just gonna do our thing write our scripts make our movies and mm-hmm. you know, can't worry about yeah. the other. Can't worry about the other crap. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, yeah, it's like a. I guess, like, a final question. Um, I mean, yeah, for people right now who are just finding filmmaking or, or animating, or just like COVID aside, just people who are new to this who want to get into filmmaking. Like, what would you say to them? Like, starting out and you know, like do's or don'ts or like things that you wish you would have known starting out i would say um if you it's tough when i started out i've had this conversation with a lot of people that have worked on films that are either my films or i've just been on a crew with and especially if they're younger i'll kind of ask them like what their ambition is like what do you eventually want to do and you know, like a lot of people want to direct or write or whatever. And I think that there's the struggle of like, I don't know what to write or I don't know what to make a movie about, which is, 
it's not something I ever ran into. My interest in movies came from kind of an overabundance of ideas and like things I wanted to do. But I think, I think the biggest thing is just to, it's kind of a cliche and I didn't follow the advice of this cliche when I was younger and going back, what I would tell myself is uh, you have to write to your voice. Like you cannot try to make a Tarantino movie. You cannot try to make a Richard Linkletter movie or a Wes Anderson movie. Those people already exist and they already make their movies. You can't like, you're not going to out Tarantino Tarantino. So you have to do what you, you know, you have to write your story and uh, an example would be like, I knew this guy who was a Christian filmmaker and he was really into, he didn't want to be a Christian filmmaker, he was, but he was super religious. He was super into uh, that world, but he also wanted to make movies, but he kept trying to make like movies that were like action movies or movies that were just about all of these things that A, uh, they didn't have the budget to achieve, but B, we're not like speaking to something personal to them. Like it was not a story that was reflective of them. And I was like, if you made a movie about a person who wanted to be a filmmaker, but was also trying to like be a Christian, but didn't want to be pigeonholed as being a Christian filmmaker, you don't have to make that movie, but that story would resonate something real in you that might knock something else loose. Uh, and I, I struggled with the same thing. Like I wanted to make these like, kind of ambitious science fiction films, but I did not have the money for them. So I would be frustrated trying to write something I knew I could never make. But then when I pulled back and when we made like How the Sky Will Melt, that was script was written based on the feelings that we were going through at the time, conversations Sarah and I were having. And that was the first thing I wrote where I felt organically like it just exploded out the way I wanted it to. And it looked the way that I wanted it to. And when we were shooting it, we were able to like dive into things that we had been discussing because we were making a drama, like, you know, and maybe experimental, maybe slightly horror, but the ideas came from just conversations that we were having. And like, this would be an interesting piece of dialogue and this would be an interesting thing to show. So going back, I would tell myself, I think there's the trope of write what you know, but I think investigate what that means. It doesn't mean you can't make an action movie. It doesn't mean you can't make a science fiction movie, but you can do that in the context of uh, your means, but also what your story is. Like Primer is a great example that Shane mm -hmm. Carruth's first movie. It's a science fiction movie. It's very ambitious, but it is about the philosophy of time travel because that's the kind of guy he is. And those are the conversations that they were having about time travel paradoxes and loops and stuff like that. And so the movie is not like some, you know, Kubrickian 2001 movie or some Christopher Nolan time travel movie. Like it is this bare bones movie, but you can tell that it came from a very genuine place. And when they were doing it, you can tell these guys like, this was the thing they wanted to say. This was what they wanted to do. Um, if you feel like you're trying to knock someone else off or you feel like it's, you're trying, it's going to read that way. Um, and I also say this as somebody who's programs for a couple of film festivals, we can always tell if you're referencing somebody really specific and there's like flavors of that. So mm -hmm. it's not even like your movie is going to break through some barrier because Festivals like Slamdance, which I program for here and there, and like our film festival in Boise, Film Fort, we really 
try to find, even if it's not very developed or it's a little rough around the edges, they're more likely to take something that feels new. It feels like a, a new voice is behind it than somebody that's trying to do like a Michael Mann movie or like, mm-hmm. you know, the overused Tarantino or whatever. Like you can tell who somebody's referencing and you're like, okay, you're trying to do Coen Brothers. But over here, this <laughs> filmmaker, we have no context for Like this movie is so bananas and so weird. And maybe technically there are some issues, but that is the movie that I will pull for more because I'm like, this person, like, I want to see what they do next. That's the kind of person that I'm going to grab that versus somebody else that's, they're just trying to make another carbon copy of a Hollywood established style. And certain festivals like that, but a lot of the ones that you kind of need to get into first to work your way up. They don't. They don't want that because they want to be the ones that discover a new voice, not a redundant. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, I was like, well, yeah, my my, so- I just finished my sophomore year. I'm going into my my junior year, and this this really reassured me because the whole year people kept saying, in regards to critique, like, um, like that that's so Amelia. Like this is such an Amelia film. And I would yeah, get kind great. of, which is like, I, at the time I was like, this is kind of annoying. Like I want kind of more <laughs> feedback, but I mean, this like reassures that like, oh, they're just saying like, I've, I've kind of like have a voice going for myself right now. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah. that's, uh, I, I, I have had conversations with people at film festivals that, <sighs> that have really tried to like sort of explore that in some weird way where they're like, um, they're like, okay, so the, like the Matthew Wade style of filmmaking, like the style that you have, they want to like delve into how I developed it. And I'm always like, I really don't think about it because I don't want to ruin it. Like I don't go into, I don't know why I'm attracted to the certain colors I'm attracted to or whatever, but I just let things be the way that they I want them to be like in my head. And I think people fear this like redundancy of style. Like I have to do something new every time, but I think film, you see filmmakers kind of do, you know, they have a style like Kubrick has a style. That's Kubrick. Like the way that he holds on shots or moves a camera or uses a zoom lens. Um, Everyone kind of has that style that, you know, the overused idea of the auteur, but that, that I think that there's, I think that there's merit to that because I want to see cinema by an author, like a a person with a specific point of view that is their thing. I'll keep seeing their stuff because I'm interested in somebody who's like kind of expanding their own cinematic universe is kind of how I look at it. Like Amelia's cinematic universe, the things that exist in the way that, you build them and you add context to them. That's cool. I'm way more interested in those types of filmmakers than I am somebody who just like jumps from commercial project to commercial project. Cause I'm like, you could have directed this, but so could anyone else that's like done TV or whatever. But when you're seeing something where it's like, this person is clearly trying to work something out and maybe there's like the same themes or same colors or same locations over and over again. But it's like, I'm always interested because I think every time they do that, you're peeling the onion back a little bit more to your own work. If that makes any sense. No, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I feel like you've definitely this like this end conversation has kind of helped me kind of like collect myself and like go visit my work again and finalize the edit and, you know, just like 
not freak out too much and yeah yeah and like i hope with you as well like you know like continue to flush out the writing process you're in right now and yeah i'm excited to see your future work and i guess like yeah a little i guess like the final note of like uh if you have anything else you wanted to add or um like want to promote that you're like currently working on for for the listeners um the only new thing I have right now is uh, the new feature, Black Earth Begins to Yawn. It premiered at Slam Dance, and it's slated for a handful of other festivals that I, I don't have an announcement for yet. But, uh, yeah, it's – I'm hoping that that will eventually land somewhere, but I'm not sure where it will be. I think – I keep hearing it's got kind of more of a uh, – maybe Canadian or European sort of distribution model than anything else. But, uh, but we'll see. I, I'm kind of just kind of letting that play out as it plays out um, just because we don't owe any money on it or anything like that. So we can kind of just hold on to it and let it do what it's going to do. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the newest thing. Um, otherwise, yeah, I'm just, just writing away every day. Well, thank you so much for for joining me today, and um, this is this is a great conversation, and I, I hope you know you you enjoyed your time here. Um, and yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was cool. I, I feel I feel ready to write again. So yeah, <laughs> nice. That's awesome. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. That concludes the fourth episode of the Soluboid. I really hope you all enjoyed. If you want to check out more of Matthew's work. Visit his website, matthewade.com. And while you're at it, you should also follow him on Instagram, at MatthewWorks. If you enjoy listening to these artist talks, feel free to check out The Celluloid's Instagram page, at The Celluloid. I share and curate additional content that will go along with the people I interview, but also sharing other film-related posts. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.